Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. Something weird happened last year. China's population declined. It wasn't much, it only declined by around 850,000 people. But the last time that happened was in 1961, when the country's population was around 700 million people. Today, the population is more than double that. But by the end of the century, experts expect China to shrink back to 700 million people. So think about that. In the course of 140 years, China's population will have doubled and then fallen again by half. Think about, you know, for instance, how many buildings are built to support that population and then are doomed to sit empty in decades to come, or, or how many people will grow old without a fresh generation of young people to support them. And it's not just China. Several of China's neighbors are facing population decline too, as is much of Europe and North America. And then there's the developing world, Africa and South Asia, where populations continue to boom and where there are rarely enough jobs to accommodate all the people looking for them. It's a weird moment. That's why I wanted to have on Andrew Scott. He's a professor of economics at London Business School, a best-selling author who serves as a consulting scholar at Stanford University's Center on Longevity. And best of all, he joins me next. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Looking forward to that conversation. Okay, so let's start by identifying the, the problem. Actually, really a dual problem that we're talking about today. And we'll, we'll do that by running through some aging and population statistics. First of all, in what would have been a, a shock to our ancestors, uh, human population these days is typically measured in billions. So when did we reach our first billion and how many humans are alive today? So we reached, I mean, the best estimates, we reached one billion uh, around 1804. Uh, and that's not long after Thomas Malthus wrote a book, said that the world couldn't support a very large population. Uh, and uh, he, although he never gave any numbers and dates, it was a terrible uh, forecast because today the world has over 8 billion people. Uh, last November, the world's 8th billionth population fair person was born, apparently somewhere in Indonesia, I think. Uh, so, yeah, we've gone from 1 billion to 8 billion in just over 200 years. In my lifetime, I was born in 1965. The world population has more than doubled. So quite extraordinary. Right. So I, I don't want to turn this into too tedious an exercise, but it's so fascinating and, and important to, to understand how this growth has happened. So how much time elapsed between each additional billion? So it's been getting shorter. Uh, so, you know, it, it took until 1804 for the first billion. Then 1927 was when we reached 2 billion, so another 123 years later. So that's kind of quick, but then it starts to go really crazy. It's 33 more years till we reach 3 billion. That's 1960. It took 14 years to rack, rack, uh, rack up 4 billion, 13 years to get to 5, 12 to get to 6, another 12 to get to 7 billion, and then only 11 years to get to 8 billion. So it's kind of been speeding up. But it's a bit like an S-curve. Uh, we're now expecting it to start to, to slow down. So the United Nations, which who do a lot of different variants, uh, they reckon it's going to take 15 more years before we hit 9 billion. That's 2037. Uh, it would take a further 21 to reach 10 billion. So things are slowing down. And the world population peaks at 10.4 billion in the year 2086. And I think that's kind of an interesting number, because if we take that that world's eighth billionth person who was born last year, given global life expectancy, they will be 
uh, 64 in 2086. And then we'll start to see the world population start to fall. And that's never happened until since probably the 14th century or something like that. So things are changing. Things are changing. And many people believe those UN forecasts are actually a little bit um, optim- well, aggressive, that actually the population uh, may not ever reach 10 billion, for instance. Where is equilibrium, if, if, if we have an estimate for that? Well, I mean, there's different ways of defining equilibrium. So what I think is always interesting about the, these population stats is where we're very much looking at demography. Uh, and so, you know, if you want equilibrium, it's when the number of people being born is equal to the number of people dying. Right. Uh, but of course, what's, what's behind this huge increase in the world population has been people living for longer, but also a decline in the birth rate. Um, uh, and so right now it's that decline in the total fertility rate, the number of uh, uh, children uh, a woman can expect to have their lifetime is now falling pretty rapidly in many parts of the world. And, and that seems to be what's really driving the population uh, at the moment. On that, what, what is the fertility rate right now? I mean, we know that the, the replacement rate for the birth rate is 2.1 children per woman. Is that correct? I mean, what, where are we now? Well, it depends which country you're in. And so in loads of countries, the total fertility rate is now below that replacement rate. So I think Korea, I think, has the the, the lowest. South Korea, uh, it's 0.9. Uh, Germany has 1.5. US and UK are about 1.6, 1.7. So were it not for immigration, both the UK and the US would be having a declining population. So uh, already we are seeing countries having a declining population, but we've still got a growing world population because lots of countries still have a fertility rate above 2.1. And the fastest growing ones tend to be in Africa. I think the the 30 countries with the highest fertility rate and so sort of the highest population growth are all in Africa, where it's around about six or seven, although it's coming down. It, it looks like it's now falling to about four or five, uh, which, of course, is way above the, the total fertility rate, a replacement rate of 2.1. But it's that very sharp decline in African fertility rate that in particular makes many people think that the UN population forecasts are a little bit too high. And that, that's, the, that's the conundrum here of population and aging is that societies that typically have low birth rates have long life expectancies uh, and societies that have high birth rates have shorter life expectancies. So that's why we talk about societies as young and old right it is although i think it's a very i think it's a really confusing i think we're really confused about the words aging and young and old so so what is happening around the world is countries are at different stages of a demographic transition so they start with a very high fertility rate and a very high mortality rate often with you know lots of children dying in the first few years of life and when you've got a high mortality and a high fertility fertility rate of say seven uh, births per female um you've got a, a low population but it's stable and it's mainly young because you've got lots of young people but they're also dying but then as we start to see improvements in income improvements in nutrition improvements in medicine we see two things happen we see a fall in the fertility rate and we see people living for longer and at first those gains come from reducing infant mortality and then later from midlife mortality and then eventually from old age mortality and so all countries are making this demographic transition from a high mortality high fertility to a low mortality and low fertility but there are different stages of that process so so countries like say japan 
who went through this demographic transition very rapidly, they're at the far point where they've got a really low fertility rate, I think 1.3 or something. And they've got the highest life expectancy in the world. I think Japanese women are ex- have life expectancy at birth of 87. But global life expectancy is now around 72, 73. So everywhere lives have got longer and everywhere people are having fewer children. But there are just different stages. So, you know, Africa is at a still a relatively early stage of this uh, transition, but it's still got you know, relatively long lives compared to its history. Um, but it's also just got lots of younger people. Whereas Japan, with that low fertility rate and lots of older people, has got lots of older people. But I think, you know, we've got to try and think not so much about the balance of the population between age and young, but my own area is around longevity, which is everywhere. We've got to plan for longer lives. And I'm sure we'll come back to that later. But I think we focus a little bit too much on changes in the age structure of the population. For me, I think one of the really interesting things that's happening is we're we have to change how we age because we're living for longer. You're right. We'll come back to the to the challenges of, of aging societies. But let's start with the challenges of these high growth, you know, for lack of a better word, younger societies. W- what challenges are facing those countries? And they are. And, and, and I'll, I'll try to list some of them in a moment. I think, again, what's so interesting about this whole demographic story is that Everything is seen as a challenge. So whether the challenge of young society, challenges of older society, challenges of lots of people. Of course, at the heart of all this is actually something really good, which is that children, when they're born, are much less likely to die. Parents in middle age are much less likely to be snatched the right way. And grandparents are now much more likely to meet their grandchildren. So actually, this is, a, I think, overall a really, really good thing. But there may be challenges. And of course, the challenges of having a, a lots of younger people are how do you finance for education? How do you find the jobs for them? Often political instability is correlated with lots of uh, you know young people who feel marginalised in society. So there's a whole bunch of challenges. But in general, I think if you look at the demographic transition, the sort of the typical story, I'm not always a fan of the typical story, is that when you've got a younger society, it's sort of great because what you've got then is you've got, you're still in the early stages of the demographic transition. You haven't got many old people because not many people have reached older ages. You've got this large younger cohort coming through, but actually they're in good health, they've got education and they can work. And so a lot of your population are of working age. And so you actually get a demographic dividend. Uh, later on, when you sort of get to Japan's situation, when the birth rate's been low for a long while, and that large cohort that, you know, we used to be 20 and is now 80, are moving into retirement, you have the opposite problem, which is you've got lots of people who aren't of working age and need a pension. But, you know, if you think about that, that younger society, there are challenges about financing, health and education and risk of political instability. But from an economic point of view, that's always seen as a positive because you've got lots of young people of working age and that should give you a big boost to your GDP. I mean, I think the calculations for China were something around the order of a 2% GDP boost because of this, when, when they had a younger society. Um, you know, the, the typical person was young, the typical person was working. And that was good for the economy. Right. It seems like there are uh, a lot of economic opportunities in young, high growth societies and the challenges facing them are social and political in nature. You know, finding work for young men um, 
making sure that young men are finding partners, uh, you know, to, to marry. Although uh, that's more about the nuances of, um, uh, uh, of gender ratios rather than necessarily young society. But in terms of which countries are handling things best, I mean, again, I want to sort of try and sort of say, uh, you know, what's remarkable, I go back to Thomas Malthus, the 18th century uh, demographer who famously said, the, you know, basically, um, that the world's resources would always be outstripped by population. And so as a consequence, the population would grow too fast. We'd have famine, we'd have disease, we'd have pestilence, we'd have wars. And it just, you know, we just couldn't support such a large population. And if you look at the last 200 years, you know, whatever the limits are to population, and clearly there are some real pressures around the environment right now, um, you know, human ingenuity, behavioural change and institutional change has enabled us to support 8 billion people. So when you say which countries are sort of dealing with it best, I, I think, you know, you'd have to sort of say most countries actually in the end have done pretty well from this demographic transition. Some often used to get held up as examples like China with its, what you know, with its one-child policy could say, you know, by having this uh, big reduction in the fertility rate, you managed to uh, get a lot of benefits in terms of uh, boosting GDP growth. I think now there's a bit of a rethink around that because, of course, that then just means you end up with a very lot of older people and not many younger people in the long run. But I would say, in general, most countries have actually dealt pretty well with the whole phenomenon. They've done it at different speeds and at different pace. But everywhere, you tend to define this this demographic dividend coming to the to the fore. Today's show is sponsored by Best Buy. Best Buy is the number one retailer for consumer electronics. In fact, the podcast you're listening to was edited on a Best Buy computer, recorded through a Best Buy microphone, and reviewed using Best Buy headphones. Best Buy works hard every day to enrich the lives of consumers through technology, whether they buy online or in stores. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. So now let's let's move on to countries with with slowing or declining population growth, which I think you say make up sixty eight percent of the world's population. Um, and we'll start with with East Asia, which you've mentioned quite a bit, Japan, South Korea, uh, where these population challenges seem most acute. What kind of stresses have they experienced as a result? I mean, uh, 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 again, it's so so interesting because you know part of the the the, the dialogue about uh, rapid population growth is there's too many people. And then, of course, when the population starts to decline, people talk about the problems of a declining population. So it's, again, we're sort of hardwired to see all these things as as, as problems. And there may be some advantages in a declining world population. You're seeing two things happening as a consequence. One is presumably less environmental pressures if there's a declining population. The other thing is the reason the population is declining is this dramatic fall in the fertility rate below two. And of course, though long term, I think that's a real problem. I mean, it's literally an existential problem for humanity that something will need to be done about it. Um, it does mean that there's sort of been a shift from quantity of children to quality of childhood. And I think that gives us you know, great scope to try and nourish and help people much more uh, over their lives. So I think there's lots of positives. Uh, but if you were to focus on the negatives, I think there's, there's two aspects. One is a declining population means that in certain regions, you've just got villages or perhaps even cities who will just be left and declining. You know, there's all sorts of uh, famous stories of Japanese villages which have now got no children in 
So the schools have statues of children. It's just older people. And that comes with a caring problem because as people get older, they need looking after. But if there are no children, there isn't that people to, to live for. So there's lots of stories of sort of decline. But that's about a combination about a declining population and more older people. But it is this sort of dialogue of an ageing society that tends to be very negative. It's sort of like a country that's losing its vitality, that's losing its freshness, uh, which I think is a, a, not a good way of looking at the problem. Um, but of course, what this does say is if you think about things economically, what you're going to have going forward is you're going to have fewer people and fewer workers. But the capital stock is still there. There's still the stock of houses. There's still the stock of offices. And so you can see you see two things start to happen. One is wages start to rise because there's fewer working people. And the market says, I need more workers, find them to me. So wages go up. And as a consequence, you'll find more people working for longer rather than retiring because the wage is attractive. Uh, you may find in countries where there's not many female workers, as the wage goes up, it brings more females into the workforce. We'll talk probably later about immigration. You'll see immigration happening. But the other thing you get, which I think central banks are very concerned about, is that if you've got too many houses, too many offices, too many machines, then the price of capital goes down. You just, you just don't need so much. And in particular, what you find is the return on capital goes down. So in economics, that's the, the long-term real interest rate starts to go down. Because you just don't need to invest in capital if you've got so much of it already. So you know, as your population declines, you need to invest in less machinery, less in factories, less in shops. And so there's less investment demand and lower interest rates. And that causes quite a lot of problems for economies. And many people argue that this is central bank's challenge. They can't stimulate the economy enough because the market interest rate is sort of tending towards zero anyway. Uh, so that's, I think, some of the, the major macro challenges that we have. Should we, should we see uh, automation as... A, a boost given, you know, a diminishing labor supply? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's certainly interesting in places like Japan and South Korea. Uh, there's certainly not a concern that robots are going to take people's jobs. It's almost like, oh, thank God for the robots. And, you know, it's interesting if you look at Japan and Korea, both of whom have got large manufacturing sectors uh, and manufacturing tends to have an older workforce Robots are great. You know, they're fantastic. Uh, and as I get older, I'm looking forward to Jack GBT helping me as a sort of a, as a sort of cognitive prosthetic, prompting me to remind me of certain things. So undoubtedly, yeah, I, I think there are positives around it. I, you know, I think it depends on how we use the robots and, and sort of if they're there to augment workers, then uh, AI and robots are great for us. If we set up AI and robotics to eliminate jobs, that's a major problem. But I think for older workers, both AI and robots are, are natural complements and, and is a really positive feature. Well, it's been great for me too. You you can't tell through the stream, but I'm actually an animatronic robot using ChatGPT to uh, ask you all of these questions. So uh, labor costs are, are really plummeting everywhere. Moving on from the, the economics, I want to I talk about Europe, where... Lots of countries are, are experiencing population decline, as you've mentioned. And the, the challenges that these countries are facing are not just economic in nature, they're also political. And the catalyst for this conversation was actually what's, going, what's been going on in, in, in France, um, where millions of people have been protesting plans to raise the retirement age. 
First of all, what's what's driving that proposed policy shift to raise the retirement age for a lot of workers from 62 to 64? Well, of course, I mean, this is a trend that we're seeing everywhere. Uh, you know, everywhere where there's increasing life expectancy, we're seeing governments under fiscal pressure. And so they're looking to raise the age at which they pay a state pension. Um, and France is a little bit behind many other countries. 62 is quite low. I mean, in my country, I think 66 right now. Uh, and in fact, in France, it used to be high and was then reduced. Uh, but everywhere, we're seeing the state pension age increase. And of course, it's unpopular. I think in France, it's unpopular for lots of reasons. One is the the way that it's being pushed through by Macron is seen as being undemocratic. But I, I think you know part of the problem here is this ageing society narrative we have. So if I you know, just go through in its standard form, the ageing society narrative says there's a change in the age structure of the population. There's fewer younger people and more older people. And as those, those large cohort of older people move into retirement, that's a burden. It's a burden for society because old people need a pension. Old people cost lots of money because they're their health challenges. And if we've got more people who need money and fewer workers who are paying taxes, then we get fiscal problems. And so the way to solve this is to make people work for longer because then you're paying taxes for longer. Now, I have to say, I, I, if we're living for longer, it's pretty hard to avoid the conclusion that unless you want to drop in your standard of living, you have to work for longer. I, I, I think it's hard to, to, to disagree with that. And most of my work is about saying you just got to accept that. But I think, you know, if we don't face up to the reality that what's really happening is not a change in the age structure of the population, but that the young can now expect to become the old, I think we need to sort of start to provide more support for later life. That's the real challenge. So if all the government does is just raise the retirement age, that doesn't make people more employable for longer. So if you look amongst most high-income countries, from about the age of 50 onwards, people start to drop out the labour market. There's not a, it's not that everyone waits to retirement age and then suddenly uh, leaves the market. And so from 50 onwards, people leave the labour market, and they do it for a number of reasons. One is they may get ill. Another is they may have to care for someone who's ill. It may be that their skills are uh, you know, uh, out of date and they're getting replaced by new technologies and they don't know how to use them. Or there's just simply ageism, and there's plenty of ageism in the workplace that thinks older people are less productive and not useful. And if that's the reason why people are leaving work from age 50 onwards, changing the retirement age from 62 to 64 really doesn't do anything. It doesn't make those people healthier. It doesn't ease the caring burden. It doesn't give them more skills. It doesn't tackle ageism. So if all we do is just raise the retirement age, then I think we're really not solving the problem. We have to try and adapt to these longer lives. And what's really happening in France, US, UK, everywhere, is no matter whether you're 20, 40 or 60, you've got more time ahead of you than past generations of 20, 40 and 60 year olds. And so you have to invest more in your future. And that's more investing more in your future health. It's investing more in your skills, more in your relationships and your sense of purpose. And if we don't do that, then we are going to struggle with these longer lives and we're going to do dumb things and just make people work for longer. But, you know, if you think about what's happening in France um, and the UK and US is even worse, although life expectancy may be increasing, not all those years of life are healthy. Healthy life expectancy is also increasing, but not as fast as life expectancy. 
And particularly in the US and the UK, there's considerable inequality around health and life expectancy. So simply having an increase in the state pension age is probably going to be denying lots of people a retirement in good health. And I think that's worth protesting against. Unless we make sure that people are healthier for longer and skilled for longer, then just raising the retirement age to me is just uh, misplaced. So I say my big research is how do we adapt to these longer lives? Because, you know, the great thing about longer lives is we have more time, but that's only great if we're healthier for longer and we're purposeful for longer. So we need to really adapt our social and economic institutions to support that. And that's more than just raising the retirement age. Yeah, I think one one fascinating statistic to your point is is that over 6 million Americans are currently living with Alzheimer's disease. It costs the, the U.S. government about $500 billion a year. By 2050, that number will be 12.7 million. Can you speak to that a, a bit? Just what are these hidden costs um, that we're seeing as longevity increases, but quality of later life stays relatively stable? So, I mean, the good news is we're living longer and we're healthier for longer. So, you know, most of the years of extra life are actually in good health. It's just that not all of them are. So, you know, basically we're gaining more years in good health and we're getting more years in poor health. Uh, and, you know, Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, but there are plenty of other age-related illnesses. I mean, I think, you know, again, we can be very negative about this because the quality of life um, it, it is often good for older people. Not everyone gets Alzheimer's. There's considerable diversity in how we age. And if we do fear getting old, there are things we can do now, no matter what your age is, to make sure that you age better. So if you are worried about things like dementia, of course, you can't eliminate the risk. But there are things to do with smoking, alcohol, sleeping, exercise, diet, all of which may help reduce the risk of getting many of these age related diseases. So, again, it's this sort of adaptation. We're just not planning our lives to expect to live that long. Uh, and then we come across in challenges. And so, you know, my work just says the most important thing, health challenge now in the UK and US, is to age well. It's to make sure that we maintain our health, our finances and our purpose for as long as possible. Now, a cure for the dementia or a vaccine to avoid dementia would be wonderful. And I think, don't think it's just about the costs of treating people with dementia. It's also just, you know, it's, it's not a great way to spend money when people have got dementia. I mean, I, if I get dementia, I would certainly want to spend money to have people looking after me, but I'd spend even more if you could tell me it would avoid me getting dementia. So we've got to move towards a much more preventative health system because, the, you know, we've seen with COVID, the most valuable thing to us is our health. Uh, we value health you know, a lot more than money. Uh, and right now, age-related diseases is the challenge. So how do we shift to a preventative health system that keeps us healthier for longer rather than have a health system that really isn't producing good health outcomes. It's just there to intervene and treat diseases. And of course, as we get older, the diseases are arthritis, pulmonary diseases, cardiovascular, dementia. And you know the best thing to do is to delay them happening rather than to treat them when we get them. That's a pretty fundamental shift. And I think you know we talk a lot about this massive increase in the world's population, which is phenomenal. But I think if you look at the story of the next you know, few decades, it's not so much going to be a massive increase in the world's population, because as we've explained, that's beginning to slow down. For me, the really dramatic change we have to do as a society is work out how to age better and make sure that as we live for longer, 
we're healthier for longer and we're productive for longer. And that's a really, really big social change. Just as dealing with 8 billion people is a massive change for society, so too planning to, you know, to be healthy over 90 or even 100 years is also a pretty radical change. Back to this, uh, this, this disconnect in pension funds. You talk about designing government policy to encourage workers to, to work as long as they can and keep them healthy. What other options are available to policymakers to help work out this misbalance in, in state budgets? There's not really many ways to do it, to be honest. I mean, at an individual level, I mean, there's, there's three ways you can try and finance a longer life. One is to save more and spend less. Uh, so in the case of governments, that's taxing people more. Uh, in the case of individuals, it's reducing your annual expenditure and just saving more every year. Um, people don't seem keen on that, but that's one of them. Uh, the second is to, to just work for longer. And the third is to just earn a higher rate of return on your money, which if you know how to do, please tell me. But, you know, kind of if I knew how to do it, I'd be doing it anyway. So they're the three options you've got to finance a longer life. Save more, work more, or to get lucky with your investments. So there's not really much to be done. Of course, what you can try and do is get someone else to pay for it all. So I can try and push the bill onto another generation, uh, which is a little bit what baby boomers have done, uh, because governments are slowly raising the state pension age, which means that uh, although if you're young, you're probably going to finance your own pension. If you're older, you're probably going to get a younger generation to pay for it. Uh, but no, other than try and make people as productive as possible for as long as possible, there really aren't many cheats around. I think that's what's ruthless about the logic of pensions. The only good thing about this sort of tale of woe I've told you is there's not a single year when suddenly the US has to pay its entire pension bill. Uh, you know, there's a lot of time ahead to in which to meet the challenge. But ultimately, it has to be about making sure that people are healthy and productive for longer. Um, and it want to sort of be engaged for longer. Uh, and that, of course, it runs very much counter to, I think, what's happening at the moment, where we say it's all about an ageing society. We really underestimate the capacity of older people and not promoting health and education at older ages, which uh, I think is a major challenge. Is there, is there not another option, you know, being immigration? Well, you could do immigration, yes. Um, so uh, th there is. I, I think it depends which country you're looking at, though, because um, if you look, say, at Japan or China, the scale of immigration required is so large, I, I just don't think that societies would accept it. Uh, we've already seen around the world immigration politically become a, a difficult subject. So I don't really think, given most countries... Um, the scale of ageing that immigration is necessarily the solution. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing is, if the problem of this is that we're just living longer lives, then, you know, the challenge is, how much do you finance when you're working your retirement? And if your pension systems are unsustainable in the sense that when you're working, you're not putting in enough to finance your retirement, Immigration doesn't solve that problem. It just makes it a Ponzi scheme because you bring in more people who are going to be not accumulating enough when they're working and then need a retirement later. The only way you could then solve that is to say, well, you can come and work, but you don't get any Social Security obligations. Uh, and I'm not sure that's uh, sustainable. So, you know, there, there is a real challenge here, which is we have to learn how to make the most of these longer lives. And right now our pension schemes 
aren't able to do that, but neither do I think are most of the policy solutions. Professor, what, what have we what have we missed? I mean, what what other challenges or opportunities exist in this new world that we're living in? Well, so for me, I mean, I think that there's, it's absolutely right to focus on these extraordinary dramatic shifts that are happening. Society is, you know, we're about to see at some point in the next few de- decades the first decline in the global population since probably the 14th century. We have got this aging society where the number of people aged over 65 now exceeds the number of people under five globally. We've got a rising proportion of people aged over 85, and we've never had that before. So those are all really, really big challenges. But as again, for me, I think what we really have to start to think about is not just changes in the age structure of the population, but we need to start to change how we age. You know, when becoming 70 or 80 was a minority risk for people, it didn't make much sense when you were 20 or 50 to start investing in your 70 and 80 year old self. But now it really does because the young today can expect to become old. So I think we have to really start thinking differently about age. We cannot afford to underestimate the capacity of older people. Uh, and we've got to recognise that what's really changed is the young will now become the old. And that's a different narrative about age. And I say normally the ageing society story is just there's more old people. Old people are a problem. That's a challenge. I think we've got to recognise the new reality that we're probably all going to become old. We can't afford to underestimate the capacity of our later years. How do we make that longer life a good uh, longer life? Well, thank you so much, Professor. You've reminded me that I need to uh, exercise and and eat better. So I'll get to doing that. Very good. Very good. Thanks so much for tuning in. This conversation really challenged some of my assumptions about population issues. Professor Scott's optimism suggests to me that I probably over-indexed on problems and forgot that, first of all, humans are adaptable. It's our superpower. We're the most adaptable species on Earth. And I also neglected to consider something important and undeniable. That whatever challenges there might be around population, be it growth or decline, those challenges only exist because one, humans are living longer, and two, humans are mostly getting richer and moving to places with lots of economic opportunity, meaning they need fewer children to help them subsist. Those are all good things. But as adaptable as we are, that doesn't mean that everyone will adapt equally. The countries that manage these changes will thrive, and the countries that don't will struggle, socially, politically, economically. If you like this conversation, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you don't have Apple Podcasts, just tell a friend about us. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday.